Welcome to the Dream Nation Podcast. I'm your host, Julia, and today on the show, I have author Daniel Pinchback. You might be familiar with some of his works, like his Breaking Open the Head, uh, 2012 The Return of Quetzalcoatl, and Notes from the Edge Times. His most recent book is called How Soon Is Now, and this is what we're going to be talking about. This podcast is all about action, empowering people with information on how they can help the planet and the inhabitants. So on the show, we talk about technology, community, consciousness, and speaking of consciousness, Randomly enough, we recorded this podcast on the National Day of Action, held by Extinction Rebellion. Nothing is an accident. We're all connected, we're all one, and this is just one tiny coincidence that proves it. I've included some additional links in the show notes that include everything that we mentioned in this podcast. It's pretty dense, but I really hope that you stick through it and listen to all the information and then Google all the websites and get in touch with them. I hope you enjoy the show. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me after a long uh, preamble. I think it's been like a year. We really tried to make this happen yeah. for a year. Yeah. I've been busy and we're in New York. And, uh, but we're here. Yay. And I actually read all of your books, uh, except for Breaking Open the Head. I have not read that book. Oh. I need to because I need to break open my head. Yeah. And um, I want to talk to you about How Soon Is Now because I think it's a very important book, especially now. And... Um, I'm going to make my way into the discussion about it. I usually start my podcast by asking my guests what their dream was as a kid. Because then you kind of get like a bigger picture of your journey. But I always wanted to be a writer. So I guess my dream was to be like a great novelist or poet or something or something like that. When did you start writing? Uh, my mother was a writer. And uh, certainly in grade school and high school, I was writing. So you weren't writing in kindergarten, you started later? Yeah, I think high school, really. I was writing poetry and stuff. What was the first thing that you wrote? Do you remember? I don't remember. Yeah. So going from that, if we're tracing our steps right to this moment, what brought you to write How Soon Is Now? I guess that's a good way to well, it's a, like what is yeah. it now, right? And how it's, a long, it's a long discussion. I mean, uh... uh I guess uh, I always had, you know, an uneasy sense that things were wrong about our society. Even in college, uh, my mother had been a left-wing book editor. My dad was a painter, and um, I dropped out of college. I wasn't really happy there, and um, worked in magazines. Was writing and editing for magazines. Then I had an existential crisis in my late twenties. Uh, I'd been writing about ecological stuff. I just started writing about ecological stuff. I wrote a feature for Esquire about why the sperm count was declining, which had to do with like plastics and pesticides and the food chain. And um, I began to realize that people were just laughing off what was happening environmentally. And um, I began to study more and more about it. And then I began to realize that there was a connection between our ecological crisis and our nihilism and our cynicism and our disbelief in anything larger than our own egos. So that led me back to psychedelics. That later wrote my, my first book, Breaking Open the Head. In the course of that book, I had all these psychic, profound psychic experiences, mystical experiences. Um, my worldview shifted from kind of being a scientific materialist and a skeptic to realizing that I really believe there's like shamanic or occult or Jungian dimensions to the universe. So that kind of like became like the biggest discovery for me. And then I'll be doing a second book where I looked at the prophecies of indigenous cultures like uh, the Mayans and the Hopi and the Aztecs and cultures like the Hindu culture in India and also 
the kind of archetype of the apocalypse in Judeo-Christian culture. But I always was coming back to this realization that we have, uh, you know, we, we've, we've created a profound rupture between human society and, and the ecological support systems of the planet. So 2012 was an effort to explore that very, very you know, philosophically and metaphysically and also personally. But then that also led me to recognize that I had another task, which was to try to understand uh, what could we do to address uh, this catastrophe we're, we're creating. So that also let me start a company, Evolver, and a, and a social network, Evolver Network, where we were getting people to start local community groups that were, they would explore permaculture and shamanism and local currencies and stuff like that. And so it took me a long time to write this third book. It took me like eight to 10 years to finish it. And so essentially the book looks at the ecological crisis we're facing as like a collective initiation or rite of passage for humanity as a species. Um, with the question hanging over us whether we're going to make it or drive ourselves to extinction. Um, and uh, then, the, then the question would be, if, if we do accept it as a rite of passage or initiation, what would be the alternative design for society? Because at the moment we're trapped in this you know, capitalist, uh, corporate globalization, technocracy paradigm, and it, it's more and more clear that's in direct conflict with the support systems of the planet. Um, so, yeah, what I argue for the book is like a whole restructuring in terms of like how we use technologies, uh, our, our social systems, and uh, how we might kind of construct a different style of relating to the world, kind of a different consciousness. What I really liked about 2012, The Return of Kipikawadal, is that it talked about a new paradigm. Yeah. And in a weird way, 2012 is kind of like where our consciousness kicked in. The fact that there are a lot of movements, people are mobilizing all over the world, everything is um, unstable. Things are kind of coming to light, but the Me Too movement and a lot of different voices, like the power shift is kind of happening. There's a power struggle, right? It, it's not a power shift. Like, I don't think it's actually going to shift. And um, the power struggle that's happening right now... What, what do you mean you don't think it's going to shift? Well... Operating from the woman empowerment sector, right? I'm looking at it as capitalism taking advantage of woman empowerment right now. So as long as whatever you say is making money for someone in regards to woman empowerment, that voice is allowed. But it's it's tokenism, and it's not real empowerment. And I think the only real empowerment women can have is by building their own power structures. That means building your own company, building your own resources, building your own economy, and actually like supporting each other. And the rest of the world, right? You don't think that men and women have to try to figure out how to work together to construct new structures and so on? They do. Yeah. But it's a complex discussion because if somebody has power, they're not going to want to give it up. So you can't compete with somebody. A king and a queen can exist in like totally different kingdoms. But when it comes to co-working together, that is such a bigger discussion because that actually means sharing power. And some societies can share power. I think Iceland is a good example of it. I think it takes a very advanced consciousness and lack of ego to be able to share power. And that goes for both men and women. You have to put your egos aside. I don't know if we're there yet as a species. I don't know if there's enough acid in the world to like get people to drop their egos and collaborate together. Well, I mean, uh, what I argued in the book, it's like, you ever heard of the, Rebecca Solden as a writer, she wrote a book called uh, Paradise Built in Hell. Mm -hmm. So she went all around the world to huge sites of like disasters and so on. She found that like a lot of people remembered them as actually great transformative experiences, partially because when you're in that type of crisis, you have to drop your ego and you have to work together collaboratively. 
Um, so, um, you know, maybe we're, that's what I argue in the book, is that maybe unconsciously we're forcing it to the edge of destruction so that we have to give up our egotism. New York is like a perfect example of crisis, right? Every time something massive happens here, we all kind of come together, and it's peaceful and relatively, like, not dangerous. You know, we don't know what would happen if, you know, if, if food really got disrupted for like three or four days. We'd probably see a lot of, a lot of crazy things here. Well, we came close with Sandy. Sandy was pretty bad. You write about that in your book, too. Yeah. That was a dark period in New York, literally dark. The food started coming in, and the fuel started coming in, so we didn't. But like, I, mean, I, I personally don't think that um, we could continue with this type of capitalism. I think it's actually already proven that it's a dead system. Uh, if, you know, the the financial elites are basically a collection of sociopaths and psychopaths who've managed to amass, you know, a huge amount of the world's resources. And um, they, you know, if they were going to address the climate crisis, they had like 30 years. Like everybody knew about greenhouse warming and all this stuff. You know, the, the oil companies were hiding it from the people and you know, distracting everybody. So you know, that system has had its time to show if it could actually deal with what's happening on the planet, and it's proven that it can't. And uh, you know, we need to snap out of our idea that we can actually. You know, but I do think we need to pressure governments. You know, that's what Extinction Rebellion, this new movement that's having its National Day of Action today, is, is saying. You know, uh, pressure governments to move faster on climate change, and then also organize people to become aware of what's happening. I mean, we really, we really are basically at the brink of extinction, and um, you know, people are not realizing it. But we've lost like. 60 to 70 percent of insect biomass in the last like 30 or 40 years. We don't even know entirely why. Um, you know, the of fish. what's that? 90 percent of fish from the ocean. 90 percent of fish, all the large, a lot of large fish in the oceans. Uh, the, the projections for climate change are now at the most dire level of the scientific projections. So we could see seven degrees, uh, you know, or four and a half degrees Celsius for the warmer by 2100. I don't think people understand how. Um, uh, how totally, um, you know, that would basically be the, the you know, finito, because, uh, I mean, we're already seeing countries like Australia right now is having 50 degree, temper 50 degree Celsius temperature, which is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. People literally can't survive in that uh, type of heat for very long. Uh, countries like Chad and Africa are experiencing the same thing. You know, so it's, it's hitting these new highs. It's going to force massive populations to get on the move. It's going to force climate refugees. The refugee crisis has already led to rising authoritarianism. We really are at the point where we either wake up and collectively move in a different direction, or there's, there's like literally no future for us. Well, we are also seeing it in the US too, with California, with just the latest fires that happened in California. And, uh, and like investors are like, you know what, maybe California is not the best when it comes to real estate and like businesses, because there are wildfires and there are earthquakes. But yeah, that's at like 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. We're already seeing these massive forest fires around the world, which are turning carbon sinks into uh, releasing tons of stored carbon, which is one of the feedback loops. But there's you know much worse ones suit up ahead, mm -hmm. you know like the methane, huge deposits of methane under the uh, Arctic yeah. that start to erupt as uh, you know as as uh, the the the, uh, the Arctic thaws. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, California is the world's fifth largest economy, and they're actually moving quicker than most places to address climate. In fact, my friends from Climate Mobilization are working on introducing a uh, declaration of climate emergency uh, on the state of California. Where can people learn more about that? Uh, They can go to the Climate Mobilization website. Just look it up, Climate Mobilization. The Extinction Rebellion website is rebellion.earth. But they actually, so in November, Extinction Rebellion organized their large-scale direct actions in uh, London. And uh, a few months later, a month later, the mayor of London uh, declared a climate emergency. Well, London is very progressive, right? In a weird way. Like, when it comes to, I mean, we're not going to talk about Brexit and all the other stuff, but I feel like, I feel like the UK is a little smaller and sometimes they're a little bit more receptive about climate change where America is just so much bigger and we're just so comfortable. And um, we don't have these discussions as the British do. Yeah, well, I mean, Europeans are a little more. I mean, you're, 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 you're smaller countries in a way; they're more fragile, um, you know. I was just googling right now um, about PG&E declaring bankruptcy after the California fires. I don't know if you heard of it, but like PG&E was supplying um, power to all of California. It turns out that um, they found out that most of the wildfires were started by their power lines and their their equipment. So PG&E is the first company to go bankrupt due to climate change. And I'm sure there's going to be so much more ahead in store. I'm sure there are other companies that have already gone bankrupt on smaller scales, but sure. I mean, for instance, the hundreds in uh, New Orleans that probably got wiped out by the flood. Right. But nobody's talking about them because they're small. When you have like a multi-billion company like PG, it's massive. And I think it's a wake-up call for them also. And uh, until we have more bankruptcies through climate change, corporations are not going to care. And, um, well, that's not true. Corporations are already caring. I mean, a lot of them are, uh, in fact, a lot of them are trying to figure out right now how to profit on uh, climate change. You know, yes. you know where, where, where do you build hotels in the future? You know, where are people going to resettle? What type of, I mean, so, you know, how do you drill in the Arctic now that it's melting and stuff like that? Um, so, yeah, but that's the thing is it's like, you know, the automatic, uh, you know, kind of, set point of capitalism is to anything that can be exploited for financial profit, you know, must be, you know, turned into financial profit and somebody's going to capitalize on that. The problem is that that system we're now realizing it just doesn't work with the life support systems of the earth. So we're going to have to like figure out something else like a hybrid socialism, capitalism, or um, some other way, or the, you know, the resource-based economy that the Venus Project talked about. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some way that people's innovation is, uh, is honored. But, um, you know, there isn't, like, um, these uh, wild extremes. You know, there's no reason that somebody like, you know, these people, these billionaires, whether Zuckerberg, Bezos, or Gates, should be, you know, so incredibly wealthy compared to everybody else. makes no sense. There's nothing in the natural reality of the world. But, in fact, anybody who's using the Internet to make a fortune is actually using the commons because the Internet was built by taxpayer money through the Department of Defense. And, therefore, like... You know, it's basically, the, it should be commons property, you know, and, and people can maybe profit a little bit off of it, but the, the, the privatization of the commons is also one of the intrinsic mechanisms of capitalism, and actually we need to, like, rediscover, re-empower the commons. It's true. Um, that's, like, a whole entire discussion of startups being funded by government money, too, which is fascinating. I think there's a lot of money flowing into Silicon Valley from the government that nobody really talks about that I won't even go into, but um, what I'm really interested in is 
giving people the tools in their everyday lives to be able to transform themselves, their community, and the planet. In your book, with Dan, you have a lot of really handy information for people to take into everyday lives. Change is really hard. What can people do in their everyday life to have a bigger impact on the world? My tiny way of participating in the bigger scheme is just like being vegan and being conscious of what I shop and just like being minimalist. Not everybody can do that because it takes a lot of willpower. Sometimes I'm resistant to kind of like, you know, going down that route of like talking that way because to really have the type of change we need to have, it has to be, you know, kind of collective and large scale. Um, but, um, yeah, like, you know, every time we travel, like a 3,000-mile plane trip, we're using a ton of CO2, which is more than an average person in Bangladesh or Nigeria uses in a year. So, um, you know, traveling less, you know, eating, you know, eating less meat or no meat if you can. But um, I think beyond that, it's really about... Um, building communities, like getting people to sit eye to eye and, um, you know, really understand what's at stake. Uh, and that really, like, you know, the lives of all of our children are at risk right now, you know, like because of what we've done to the planet. And um, we can't wait around for anybody else to take care of the situation. I mean, governments have shown that they're not going to do it. Corporations, you know, can't do it. So, so you would need something like a rising people's movement. So I, I got very excited about this new thing called Symbiosis Revolution, symbiosis-revolution.org, which really came to the very similar conclusions that I came up to at How Soon Is Now, that we need to develop a community organizing model. Um, so people, you know, like, where do you live? I live in Yeah, like, what if you got together some people and then created, like, a... Williamsburg community meetup, and then you became like part of the Congress of Symbiosis Revolution. Like you're the Williamsburg representation of like a global Congress, something like that. You know, and the, you know what's great about the internet is it could facilitate that type of thing, like like uh, direct democracy, voting, sharing resources, out reallocating resources could happen very very quickly. That's another thing you write about in your book, right? Going back to local economies and like almost local self governments. Keeping everything local, from the food production to to everything else. Well, I don't think about everything local. Some things are like you know, actually cheaper. Like you know, we're not going to be able to grow probably like avocados or artichokes in New York State. So I mean, you know, you yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. Right. Yeah, but yeah, as much as possible, keeping uh, things local is good. Technology is such a huge way to impact people. The power of technology has not even been realized yet. We're, we barely have even tapped virtual reality. Like, virtual reality is barely a thing right now. I also think tech is almost like the new enlightenment if we use it properly right now. I think the way technology is used right now, it's very shallow and it's very empty. Like, if you look at Instagram, it's just selfies. It's not an educational tool, but I think there are a few people who are using it to create awareness and share ideas and create discourse. And... I think that's what the internet is really for, to bring people together. I just want to hear your view on how we can use existing technology and like AR and VR, and who knows what the future technology might be. It might be like telepathic kinesis, I, I don't know, right? We're, we might get there. What role do you think tech plays in bringing about a global awakening? <laughs> um, that's like obviously gigantic. It is. Yeah, question. I mean, um, 
I think one problem is that we have to, first of all, reckon with the fact that it's our technological development which has caused this huge crisis. Mm -hmm. So, like, we developed plastics. You know, we didn't realize that plastics were going to infiltrate every ecosystem of the planet uh, and cause cancers and all that stuff. And obviously... You know, in some ways, technology, you know, medical technology has been aiding human health, but in other ways, it's not so clear. I mean, indigenous societies had, like, much higher infant mortality, but there were also many people in those societies who lived very long and, and very, very healthy lives. I've met, like, people in their 90s in the Amazon who could, like, climb a tree, like, 10 times better than I ever will be able to do. So um, so I think we've overrated the value of a lot of technology. And, and, and also technology... You know, became part of, yeah, we, we created an industrial society that, um, you know, we created an industrial food system, and now we've learned that that's devastated the planet's topsoil, so the UN says, and like, another, I don't know if it was 30, 40 years, there won't be, the, the soil will no longer be usable, and, and so on, so it's like, you know, I think we now have to like really reassess our technological development and not just be so gung-ho about it, and um, we have to go back in some ways to older techniques, so for instance, uh, carbon sequestration, bringing CO2 back into the soil, uh, that really requires older means of farming. So permaculture, organic farming, uh, you know, polycropping, um, you know, you, you know, no-till agriculture. So strangely enough, like a lot of things that we would need to do to, 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 to that, that could actually bring a lot of CO2 back into the ground. It also would enhance soil, which is actually about to become a huge problem globally. So, you know, and, and we know, so for instance, like, you know, uh, if we wanted to deal with ocean acidification, like the oceans are, I kind of think they're like 30% more acidic than they were 40 years ago. That's what's causing the coral reefs to break down. So by 2065, we're not going to have any coral reefs left unless we do something. So if we were to create huge kelp farms in the ocean, that would be one way because the kelp is really sucks up a lot of the CO2 that actually can be you know eaten. So it's like be, be a food source for you know, the global population, but it would be a massive undertaking. So that would require... You know, technology. So I think what we need to be looking at is like sustainable technologies that are not so harmful that we can do at scale. And I, I'm not so convinced. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, like Yuval Harris who wrote *Sapiens* and *Homo Deus*. Like he has a vision of a future of everybody. Like they're not going to have jobs anymore because of robotics, and everybody will be doing virtual reality and these like very immersive game environments and so on. I, I find that a very depressing uh, vision. Uh, I would rather see people coming together to, you know, explore psychedelics, uh, visionary experience, uh, tantric experiences of intimacy, you know, co collective communion. I would rather see us going more embodied, like using the tools of technology to allow us to experience like more as humans rather than thinking that it's, it's like at the moment we're like the slaves to this technology and a lot of it is not necessarily in our best interests. Uh, I mean, artificial intelligence could definitely be applied, uh, you know, to bring about amazing uh, benefits, uh, but also has a lot of super inherent dangers. We just don't know. I mean, if you have like, I mean, they're soon they're going to have like you know, autonomous weapons like drones that are killing machines that can think for themselves, you know, connected to a whole surveillance system. You know, it's like, it's super dubious and super dangerous. I'd almost rather see us stop all that stuff for a while and focus on what we need to do actually, that we know we need to do restore the planet, which would be bioremediation, you know, permaculture, training, retraining people, you know, giving them a basic subsidization, you know, breaking this economic model, uh, destroying the system of, uh, you know, 
you know, uh, plutocrats and oligarchs and uh, re-empowering people to take care of the planet, learning from the indigenous people or the traditional stewards of the world and getting out of our fascination and fixation with technology, which we really have to understand the reason we're so, I mean, you know, it's cool and everything, and I like my computer and, it's, and the phone and everything, but, you know, it's also like, you know, a huge amount of marketing money c goes into colonizing our subconscious to make us think that this technological progress is so amazing, and that it's like this one-dimensional, directional thing. But meanwhile, like, you know, you have all these kids and teenagers, who, as you said, are on you know, Instagram and social media, they become more and more disconnected from each other, their bodies. It's like, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily doing all the good things that we think it's doing. And, and actually, what we really maybe need to do is more like re-inhabit the real world and begin to like peel away our, our ideology around this technology as progress, which as I said, really billions and billions of dollars have been going into making us think that we need like the new car, the new iPhone, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if people can create festivals to come around and not just celebrate music, but can like celebrate Earth and like put their consciousness together. They take the same passion that they have for festivals. You know, like I'm, I'm always curious about like, okay, what can we do? Can we create some kind of a model, kind of like a Coachella for the freaking world? There was like all the concerts in the seventies and the eighties. You know, world aid, all those things that weren't the same. But like, really make festivals like a movement where everybody has. An impact. Like, if you go to the festival, this is what you're doing. Like, this is your role, and this is how you can participate in the festival and in the global world. And I think people want that connection. Maybe, I don't know. You can try it. I can try it. <laughs> Fire Festival 2.0. But um, what is your dream as an adult? Uh, I'd like to see a global revolution to overthrow the capitalist system and, um, you know, recreate a new system with different values based on a mystical understanding of the unified nature of consciousness. Just a small dream. Yeah. I love it. Well, I think this podcast is a small way to do it because I think it's a way to get into people's consciousness because my goal is to get into people's consciousness who aren't thinking about this, who are just tuning out every day, who are going to the bar, or they're tuning in for a distraction. And... Um, I think everybody should pick up your book as soon as now, because it's now, <laughs> and it's soon. And um, you have a new book that's coming out too as well, right? So I have a book coming out. It's actually, I, I wrote it with a co-author, my friend Sophia Rockland. And she originally was just, she uh, was working with me as a researcher, and then she got really involved in the topic, and she's had a lot of experience. So actually, in the end, we wrote it together. That was actually a really beautiful, fun experience because, you know, writing books is, like, lonely and long. And so I think I'm going to experiment more with collaborating. So that book is called When Plants Dream. And now I'm actually working with a uh, Chinese-descended uh, guy in London, Wei Sang, on a uh, manifesto. Uh, based on a lot of his ideas, some of my ideas, we actually have very similar ideas about kind of like the history of revolutionary movements and their relationship to esoteric uh, religion. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow, that's going to be in probably 2020? Uh, well, yeah, we'll see how fast we can do it. Oh my God, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Sure. I'm glad we made this happen and uh, pick up Daniel's book right now. Well, they went like the other books, Breaking Open the Head on Psychedelic Shamanism or 2012. Return of Quetzalcoatl, that was about uh, prophecies. And they might want to get involved with the Extinction Rebellion movement, which is rebellion.earth, or the Climate Mobilization, uh, which is whatever it is on the a website, look it up. Or check out symbiosisrevolution.org, which uh, I think is a really interesting new thing I just discovered. And uh, tell your friends. Thank you so much. Bye. And have a great sure. day.
Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.